Before we get into this episode, I need to make you aware of an exciting gamebook competition. Friend of the podcast, Stuart Lloyd, who among other things runs the Lloyd Gamebooks blog, has organised the third annual Lindebaum Prize competition sponsored by Peter Agapov. There's cash prizes to be won, along with a miniature painted by my own fair hand. The full entry requirements are available over on Lloyd of Gamebooks, with Lloyd being double L-O-Y-D, and there will be a link in the show notes. But in summary, all you have to do is write a gamebook of no more than 100 sections and 250,000 words, and submit it for judging before the 20th of February 2024. Entries will be judged by a team of judges, including my good self, and voted on by readers as well. It's the Eurovision of gamebooks, basically, but sadly without Graham Norton providing increasingly drunken commentary. This is a great opportunity for everyone, but especially if you haven't written a gamebook before, 100 paragraphs is very, very manageable. This is a great chance to find out what you can do. I'd love to be completely snowed under with entries, I really would. If I wasn't on the judging panel, I'd be entering it myself. We now return you to your regularly scheduled nonsense. Hello and welcome to another instalment of Fantastic Fights, the show about a middle-aged man playing adventure gamebooks out loud on the internet. This episode is another bonus episode made possible by my lovely patrons over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Thanks to their largesse, everyone gets to enjoy a second episode of Fantastic Fights each and every month. I have the pleasant duty to thank two patrons this episode. Firstly, Martin Childs a new patron, and Nick McJanet, a returning patron. Thank you so much for your support, it really does make this show possible. As well as the warm glow of keeping the lights on, all patrons also receive a parcel of gaming goodies, including three gamebooks and three complete role-playing games. There will be another gamebook coming out soon, and new episodes of my other podcast, Popular Antiquarian, in 2024. Now on with the show. Night Shift is a horror game book written by Victoria Hancocks and released in 2019. This is the second edition. It's her first game book and she has written a further six titles along with two novellas. The cover illustration is by Peter Stanimirov and internal art, which varies between good and excellent, is by Svenja Walter and Venislav Velikov. Apologies if I butchered any of those pronunciations. This is only the second gamebook that we've covered that was written by a woman, the first being Raid on Nightmare Castle by Kathleen Maguire, which was part of the TSR Endless Quest series. That was some time ago as well. I think I'm going to make a concerted effort to hunt down some more gamebooks written by women in 2024. If there's anyone listening with some recommendations for female creators in this space, then do get in touch at hjdoom retrofun all one word at gmail.com or via blue sky at hjdoom 
Now, there's both a paperback and a hardback version of Night Shift. I bought the hardcover, partly because hardcover books are nice, and partly because the hardcover version comes with the solutions for the various puzzles at the back of the book as a bonus extra, and I think this is a neat idea. If you're like me and not knowing the answers to puzzles annoys you out of all proportion, then the hardback will ease your frustration. If you prefer to keep yourself honest, then the paperback will stop you from cheating. It's a small thing, but it provides the player with choices for how they engage with the material, and that's always good. There's no system. This is more like a choose-your-own-adventure book than a fighting fantasy book, and the introduction notes that if there were a dice system, you'd most likely cheat anyway, which is a fair comment. Much as I love throwing dice, a change is also nice, and it will hopefully make the bookkeeping as I play a bit easier as well. I can obviously choose a name for my character, and I'm going to choose a nice everyman name that suits the protagonist of a horror story set in modern times, Chantry von Smellingsaltz. With that truly excellent character name out of the way, let's dive into Night Shift. You wake up with a start, and the darkness confuses you at first. Where are you? With your heart thudding in your chest, you grope aimlessly around trying to get your bearings. You're lying across functional and slightly sticky faux leather chairs. Oh, that's right. You give a relieved sigh as your eyes adjust to the gloominess, and you can now make out the furniture in the small break room. How long had you been asleep? It had been an intense night shift in the operating department so far. You hurtled straight into an emergency aortic aneurysm, who, despite everyone's best efforts, died on the table. And once you'd cleaned that up, the phone rang, warning you that an urgent neuro case was on the way. At least that had gone better. Clot removed and patient patched up. But it was hard to say just how much brain damage was already done. That was 3.30. You and Nancy trudged off to the break rooms where Nancy settled down with a Netflix programme and you'd gone off to catch some much-needed sleep. You always suffered from insomnia when you were working the night shift. Gradually, notice the silence. Maybe Nancy fell asleep too. But there's something else. And for that matter, what woke you up? You stand up, cracking your spine as you stretch and then go for the door. As soon as you open it, though, it is clear that something is definitely wrong. The corridor is dark. Who turned the lights off? The lights are never turned off. And then you hear it, a lazy, heavy drip-drip. You think about calling out to Nancy, but your throat is constricted, so you inch towards the entrance of the other break room, fingertips walking over the wall. You draw closer and closer, and can now see a flickering light in the darkness. There's no sound, but the television illuminates the scene. So that's a nice, efficient bit of scene-setting straight out of the gate. Uh, tells us who we are, which is someone who works in a hospital, tells us where we are, which is in a hospital, and uh, introduces a mystery to be investigated immediately. Uh, yeah, A-plus scene setting. You gasp, an involuntary intake of shock, and your hand automatically covers your mouth. You stare, you can't stop staring, and you know that Nancy is beyond help. She is slumped over on her side, 
throat slashed from ear to ear and stab wounds all over her body. An ever-widening pool of blood is collecting on the floor as it oozes down from her neck in slowly coagulating drops. At that moment, you notice them. The footprints. The bloodied footprints walking away from the corpse and into the corridor. It breaks your paralysis and you moan. He's still here. The murderer is still here. For a second you feel an overwhelming urge to slump on the floor and wait until he finds you. But then, no. You don't want to die. You have to get out. There is a picture on the facing page of Nancy lying dead in the break room. I would say it's very good. Um, you've got the blood-spattered TV. You've got a collapsed chair. You've got the woman lying one shoe off in a pool of her own blood. Her throat, yes, gruesomely hacked open and a trail of bloody footprints leading from the scene. It's great. You think quickly now. The intensive care unit. Plenty of people there. Plenty of help. That's the best place. You pad almost silently down the small corridor, pause at the end, then decisively open the door and slip into the main part of the operating department. You freeze, holding your breath, listening. The door closes behind you with a gentle whoosh. It's a giveaway. If he heard that, he knows exactly where you are. You stand there like a statue for an eternity, although it's probably only seconds, and then set off again, running steadily towards the locked door at the far end. The door that connects the theatres to the ICU. Only a few more steps, just a few more steps. You slide into the alcove, trying to breathe without making a sound. You feel sick, but you're nearly there. All you have to do now is put in the code to unlock the door. And that's when you hear it. A distinct cough, followed by a door opening and the footsteps of someone heavy. Someone confident. And someone heading this way. Your brain explodes in a blaze of panic, all neurons firing at once. Get out! You turn to the keypad, remembering only that the code is the first four prime numbers. He's getting closer. You can hear his breath. You can smell him. You've only got one chance. With your sweating, slippery fingers, what number do you type in? Well, this is uh, very exciting straight away. Uh, very nicely written. I think writing horror in the second person is genuinely quite difficult, particularly in a game book setting where you are trying to provide quite a lot of information at the same time as providing atmosphere. But anyway, you've got a choice of uh, three sets of digits, two, three, five, seven, one, two, three, five, or one, three, five, seven. Well, as any fool know, a little Molesworth reference there, the first uh, four prime numbers are two, three, five, and seven. Nice easy uh, starter there in the puzzle stakes. You yank the handle down and pull the door open. You slide through the gap, then desperately turn to close it. The shadow looms nearer. The door closes, but slowly, oh so slowly. You feel a scream ripping at the side of your throat. Come on! And then it clicks, just as the handle rattles. 
Your heart stops for a second, but you hear a curse and a fist slammed on the door. You slump down the walls, legs too weak to hold you, but your blood thudding in your ears. Gradually, you start to breathe again, and you look around. You're in a corridor that you know well, but not like this. The dim, nighttime light can't disguise how run down and abandoned it is. This isn't normal. You can see patches of damp and spores all over the wall. The paint is peeling off and a thick layer of grime lies underneath your fingers. You get up, using the wall as leverage, but snatch your hand away as a spider runs over it. What is going on? You stand with your back to the door you've just escaped through. The corridor leading to the intensive care unit is to the left, and you can decide to head there. However, if you go straight ahead, you'll reach the main hospital thoroughfare, and if you think that's a better option, you can do that instead. I talked in the last episode about the way uh, corridors are a difficult thing to get right in adventure game books, and how dungeon environments uh, tend to involve a lot of straightforward left-right choices with very little information being conveyed and I talked about how most spaces have a logic to them that uh, human beings are very good at decoding. One thing I might have added to that is that if it's a space you're actually familiar with that makes it even easier to decode and as someone who works in this hospital you are entirely familiar with the layout which means that instead of going which way do you want to go we actually get a choice between sections of the hospital which is just a much more interesting choice so there's a little interesting wrinkle if you were going to include something like that in a more traditional fantasy dungeon environment uh, you could include someone like a guide who uh, provides information about what lies in each direction or you could even just simply provide a map and that would be interesting not least because a map obtained perhaps from an unreliable source, might not contain all of the necessary information to navigate the space. So um, yeah, this book is already making me think about design in a different way, and that is awesome. Anyway, it was hinted that there should be people in the intensive care unit, so that is where we are going to go. You walk down the corridor, far from intensive care being the safe option you hoped for, all you can see is carnage. The sign, Intensive Care Unit Please Buzz for Entrance, is lying twisted on the floor. The security doors that normally barred unauthorised visitors are swinging off their hinges, huge holes punched through, and beyond them, who knows? You tread carefully over the debris, wondering whether this is still a good idea. Do you want to creep into the Intensive Care Unit, or would you rather ring the buzzer? think the buzzer is just going to attract the attention of something horrible. I think this is a time for sneaking. I really am a sucker for a familiar space made unfamiliar and weird. And um, messed up hospitals have a tremendous uh, lineage in horror media. So it's a great choice. And also the uh, the carnage that we're encountering is both spooky and terrifying and also provides a reason why 
we're not constantly running into people, which is one of those things that game books are pretty bad at. Uh, so yeah, good design choice there as well. You inch silently into the intensive care unit and soon reach the first bay. But to your intense disappointment, you can see that it is clearly empty. The beds have rusted frames, some with torn mattresses, others with brown stained sheets still on them, but no patients and no nurses. There are drip stands scattered over the floor and cobwebs drape from the curtain rails. At first you can only hear your own heart thudding, but then you hear another noise. It's coming from the second bay, a gurgling, choking sound. A patient? You peer around the corner but can't make anything out, although you do notice an open door in the far wall. You're not sure what this room is, but you can decide to head over to it. On the other hand, if you think you should try to find the choking patient, you can do that too. Mystery room or choking patient? Well, Chantry von Smelling Salts is clearly a doctor or a nurse, some kind of medical professional, perhaps an anaesthetist, who knows. And yeah, I think they would be someone who would be drawn to the possibility of helping someone if there is indeed someone in distress in that bed. So that's what we're going to do. You edge further into the second bay following the strange sound. It gets louder as you get closer and then you can see the patient. The sheets have been kicked off and you can see its thin legs writhing. It's wearing a hospital gown. It's just skin and bones and from its mouth you can see the intubation tube. That's where the gurgling noise is coming from. Suddenly it looks straight at you, eyes bulging and staring then starts to pull at the tube. You dart forward as if to help a normal patient, but then you realise that the tube keeps coming. The patient gags and retches as it drags the tube from its throat, but it never ends. The tube just keeps coming. You stagger back with your hand over your mouth while it stares at you. There's definitely nothing that you can do to help it, and you've had enough of this place. And that's noise. Do you want to leave the intensive care unit or stay a little longer to check out the room over on the far wall? We will check out the room. That is a uh, very grisly image. I really like it because it's taking something mundane, a uh, intubation tube, and very subtly tweaking it to make it uh, truly horrific. You approach the doorway and see an eerie green light emanating from within. It's an office, and the computer monitor has its green standby light on. You gasp. Electricity? Internet? Ah, yes. Internet. Absolutely the first priority for anyone who's grown up as a digital native or an early adopter. Um, yes. Can I get on the internet would be absolutely my first thought. Obviously, you could use the internet to try and summon help, but equally... It'd just be nice to uh, go and check the socials. However, when you rush to the desk, you quickly realise that not only is there no actual computer, but the monitor is not even plugged in. You can't bring yourself to ask how it's lit up if it has no power. As you stand up to leave, you notice the cursor flashing on the screen, and suddenly a stream of letters appears. When I'm small, I'm the longest, and when I'm large, I'm the shortest. What part of the body am I? Seriously, a riddle. You shake your head disbelievingly. However, 
If you find yourself in a location which might be connected to the riddle's answer, add 50 to the section number you find yourself at and then turn to that section. So when I'm small, I'm the longest. When I'm large, I'm the shortest. Uh, I think that might be potentially the intestine because the small intestine is paradoxically longer than the large intestine, I think. It's been a long time since GCSE biology. Uh, a very long time, but I, I think that's right. Uh, I'm going to sound like an absolute chump if I'm wrong. But anyway, uh, that's intriguing, so I just make a note of that. There's nothing else here in this office, so you head back towards the exit. But before you leave, a notice board on the wall catches your eye. You're not sure why, but you feel drawn to two items pinned up there the off-duty roster and a postcard. Do you want to examine either of these, or would you rather ignore this strange compulsion and leave? Let's have a look at the roster. You reach for the green-coloured chart, but the drawing pin falls out, taking the roster with it to the floor. You tut in annoyance, but then notice a small hole in the board. It has been hidden by the roster, but as you peer closer, you realise that the hole goes through the wall too. Do you want to press your eye to the hole so you can look through? Or do you have a bad feeling about doing that? I have a terrible feeling about doing that. Yeah, I've played enough Call of Cthulhu not to want to put anything fleshy and fragile next to a hole. If this was a traditional role-playing game, someone would look through the hole, but there would be a tremendous argument between the members of the party about precisely which of them was going to look through the hole, trying to work out which of them only really needed one eye. I am going to look through the hole, though, because um, I, I just have to know. I have to know. At first, you can't believe what you're seeing. It's the adjacent renal unit, and it looks normal. You pull back, ready to yell through the small hole, but at the last second, see something and pause, squinting again. It looks normal doesn't it? Nurses walking back and forth, patients in bed, clean, no murders. Just what you'd expect. But there it is again, a slight shimmer in the atmosphere. It's as if what you're seeing isn't really what you're seeing, as if two images are superimposed over each other. But that doesn't make sense, does it? And then it starts. A loud humming noise, the buzz of millions of insects. It fills your brain and finally you step back from the notice board. Like a switch going off, the droning stops and all you can hear is the gurgling sound still coming from the second bay. You wish you knew what was going on, but something tells you you're not going to find any answers here. You head for the exit. Very mysterious, very evocative. Just before you reach the main doors to the intensive care unit, you hear a sound that chills your blood. A faint click as the connecting door to the operating theatres opens. You freeze. Footsteps again. Those heavy, confident footsteps. But are they coming your way? There's nowhere to go if they do. You can run and you can hide. But all that do so have all died. Comes a sing-song voice from the distance. Not only is he hunting you, he's taunting you too. 
tears fill your eyes and trickle down your cheeks, but then you realise the footsteps are moving away from you. He's heading towards the rest of the hospital. You hear the door at the end open and close, and you sag with relief. You're safe for now. You head quickly along to the junction. The door on your right, which leads back to the operating theatres, is now wide open, and you can decide to go back there. If you want to head left and follow in the man's footsteps, you can do that too. It's such a simple premise. The hospital is almost empty, weird stuff has happened, and there's someone in there trying to get you. It really sort of summons up uh, is it alien isolation. Is that the one where it's just you and a uh, xenomorph from the alien franchise? Uh, kind of hiding and trying to do stuff. Yeah, uh, it's got that vibe. Really enjoying it. Uh, do we want to go back into the operating theatres or follow the footsteps? I want to stay as far away from this person as I possibly can. So we'll go back to the operating theatres. Strangely, the first thing you notice is that the normally polished floor is covered with a thin carpet of green mould there are no footprints smeared into it. So wherever you were earlier, it certainly wasn't here, which hopefully means that he isn't here too. The walls used to be a pale green colour, but now are painted a dark Prussian blue. It's discoloured and flaking in places, but it still feels like being in a deep abyss. The watery sensation is enhanced by a constant trickling ahead of you in the corridor, but it smells unusual and distinctly acidic. I'm not sure what you should do. This obviously isn't the way back into your world, but where is? With an impatient shake, you decide that standing here isn't going to help. You need to find something out. Anything. You start walking down the corridor past the operating theatres when you notice one of the doors is propped open and there's a light on. There wasn't a light before. Do you want to enter the operating theatre or investigate the acidic smell? Um, am I going to see a genuinely horrific operation being undertaken if I do that? Yeah, I think I probably am. But let's do that anyway because uh, it's just too intriguing. Despite the dark blue hue of the walls, the brightness of the operating lights exposes everything in stark detail. Especially the corpse lying on the table. A young woman with her long, dark hair hanging over the side and dull, glazed eyes staring beyond you. Oh, and a huge, gaping incision in her abdomen. Did something happen that interrupted the surgery so they had to leave her here? You creep closer, and your expert eyes take in the stomach and the intestine, but where's her liver? This looks less like the sort of surgery you know, and more like a harvesting. Suddenly the operating light starts shifting, moving steadily from the dead woman to the other side of the room. Eventually it stops, the beam of light aimed directly at the operations register. Do you wonder if any details of this so-called surgery were recorded? Do you want to examine the register, or do you think it may be more prudent to find a weapon? Working on the principle that in horror games, weapons are a trap to try and make you stab things that can't be stabbed. I'm going to examine the register, looking for a clue. Information is power. 
Instead of a patient's name, it just says eight. The part where the surgery is described is totally blank and the surgeon's name is Lister. Well, that was useful, you think sarcastically, but maybe it was. Who knows? You've had enough of this abattoir, though, so you head over to the scrub-up area where the exit door is. So we've got uh, potentially a clue. Not clear how it might be useful yet, but uh, worth finding out anyway. You find yourself back in the blue corridor. Just ahead is the entrance to the recovery bay, and a little further on is the staircase which leads downstairs to more operating theatres. You want to get out of this oppressive darkness. So if you decide to try your luck downstairs, go to one section. If you prefer to head to the recovery area, uh, you can do that too. So I think we're going to go to the recovery area. Maybe someone will be recovering. The silvery moon casts a cold light on the large room. Normally it was full of patients waking up after their operations, but now it's cluttered with discarded equipment and everything has a heavy coating of dust and mould. There's nothing here, you decide, but just when you set off for the exit, the ceiling lights flash on and off. You wait, not breathing, half hoping, half dreading that something else happens. Suddenly, it does. The wall light opposite switches on, and then swings round, sweeping an arc of light across the room. If you've seen this happen before, you should remember a name the name of a surgeon, or more accurately, a butcher. Turn the name into a number by using the code A equals 1, etc. Add the numbers together, and turn to the section with the same number. If you haven't come across a name, the strange light means nothing to you, and it's probably time to get out of the department. So we have a name which is Lister. You vaguely remember that Joseph Lister was famous in medical history, but what for? Maybe if you knew that, it could lead you to some other answers. You look desperately around the recovery area, hoping for inspiration, but there's not a lot here. Eventually, you think you've remembered what Lister was best known for. So, what do you go to look at? There is a bottle of antiseptic soap, the box of face masks, and the ECG monitors and leads. So, I seem to recall that Lister was someone who realised that keeping surgical areas clean could reduce the risk of infection when performing surgery, I think. That's one of the things Lister was famous for. So I'm going to go and look at the antiseptic soap. Although I don't recall Joseph Lister uh, collecting people's livers. Uh, maybe he did. Maybe he was also a serial killer. My, my knowledge of medical history is not the best, but uh, um, I'm reasonably certain that I'd have heard if he'd been known for um, saving countless lives and taking quite a lot of lives for his medical collection. You examine the bottles of soap, knowing that Lister saved countless lives by using antiseptics to prevent infections. When you look at the fourth bottle, you can see a tiny wedge of cardboard protruding from behind it. Gripping it with your nails, you give it a tug and find yourself holding a dried and pressed bluebell. You can't imagine how it could be of any use, but still, you place it in your pocket carefully and head for the exit. It's quite a nice um, a sort of video game feel to this, and I mean that in a good way. 
It reminds me a little bit of one of my favourite video games, which is the first uh, Batman Arkham Asylum game, where um, at various points in the narrative, Batman is hit by the Scarecrow's fear toxin, which makes him hallucinate wildly and transforms the um, adventure briefly into this non-linear nightmare. And I'm getting that kind of vibe from this and honestly i was listing my all-time favorite video games batman arkham asylum would be in my top three so anything that reminds me of that is uh, doing well you walk swiftly to the exit of the operating department and unlock the doors but when you step out into the main thoroughfare your heart sinks you were hoping it would look normal that you'd finally woken up from a nightmare but no if anything, it looks even worse. Ceiling tiles are hanging down from the twisted metal struts and there are deep, long gouges in the few vestiges of plaster on the walls. If you didn't know better, you'd say that they were claw marks, but it couldn't be, could it? You take a deep breath and try and plan what to do now. You can either go left or you can go right. So I've been recording for 40 minutes and that is the first straight left-right decision we've been offered. That's excellent, but whenever we're offered the first left-right choice, we always go left. There is a map at the back which I could refer to, um, but I haven't been paying enough attention, quite honestly. The dim light flickers constantly, making the shadows jump and shift. You keep seeing figures out of the corner of your eye, but when you look, there's nothing there. On your left are the doors that lead back to the ITU. On no point in going there, you think, but now something else has got your attention. After a few more steps, you reach stairwell B and see that the fire door has something daubed on it. It's gloomy here, so you have to rely on the weak glow of your trusty pen torch. Still, there's no hiding what this symbol is. You curse and feel tears spring to your eyes. Not that you believe all that superstitious nonsense, but really? Five-pointed star, what's it called? A pentacle. That's never a good sign. You try the door, but surprisingly, it won't shift. It's locked, so you walk on to the end of the corridor, which turns sharply to the right. Do you want to follow the corridor around? Or do you want to... Go straight on through the doors to the renal unit. And there's a little picture of a uh, pentacle or a pentagram, um, which is nice. Um, yeah, the helpful, helpful reference point. So I could probably work out uh, from the map exactly where I am with the information I've got. But I do firmly believe that maps are for cowards. So let's have a little look at the renal unit. You try to push open the door, but it's stuck at the bottom. You heave with all your strength, hearing it scrape against the floor, and when the gap is big enough, you attempt to squeeze through. Just as you're wedged in the space, having serious doubts about the wisdom of this manoeuvre, you see a shadow shift ahead of you. You gasp and try to pull back, but your scrubs get caught. A tall figure steps from behind the door and stands in front of you. For a second, you both stare at each other. It's wearing a long, waxed coat, a beaked plague doctor mask, and is holding a kidney in the right hand. 
It's quite a sight, and for a few seconds you're too dumbstruck to be frightened. There is a picture of the gentleman and or lady and or NB dressed in old-fashioned garb and wearing the Plague Doctor mask, accessorising it, I might add, with a uh, very fetching top hat. Uh, it's a really good picture, really nice. There's some lovely details like a, uh, a butcher's cleaver hanging from the belt along with some... Uh, books and some garlic and of course the uh the lump of flesh in the uh outstretched hand it's uh yeah it's another really nice evocative piece of art what do you want i'm busy it barks at you the voice muffled by the beak i want to get out of here you eventually stutter it sighs impatiently well its left hand is outstretched, waiting for you to put something in it. I haven't got all day. This kidney won't transplant itself. You have a look of confusion on your face as you think about the items stuffed in your pockets. But before you can come to any decision, it pushes you firmly in the chest, away from the door, and then forces it shut again. You have no choice now but to carry on along the corridor. So, we are not alone. Uh, could this be the person who was doing the murders? I think not. I hope not. They're clearly mysterious and quite sinister. I mean, who doesn't love a plague mask? Classic bit of imagery. Very popular with the steampunk crowd, along with refusing to interrogate any of the issues with class and race that are implicit in steampunk as a genre. Still, uh, it's mysterious and it has once again, piqued my interest. You are padding softly down the corridor, deep in thought, when a screech cuts through the stillness. You gasp and spin around, but there's nothing in the passageway. The noise came from your left, so maybe a stray and wounded animal has got into the neurosurgical unit. Do you want to enter the unit to investigate? I could do. On your right is the prayer room. You've never been in there before, but you could go in there now or simply carry along down the passageway. Let's continue our trek through the various um, nightmare surgical environments. Um, personally, um, I would regard being trapped in a constantly shifting, twisted and distorted mirror universe version of a hospital to be a perfect opportunity for some prayer um i think i'd be praying pretty hard but yeah i feel as though in the context of the game book i will investigate the neurosurgical unit maybe there will be some brains in jars you enter the room and freeze in the far corner there is an old woman slumped on the bare frame of a bed a tall, thin man is stood over her, one hand gripping her shoulder, a large book in his other. They don't seem to have noticed you. Just then you feel a touch on your leg. You look down, then gasp and flinch away. The ragdoll does the same. The walking, living ragdoll. Its cloth arms are bent, holding cloth stumps to its painted-on mouth. Then it bounds over to the sluice room. It pauses in the doorway, then nods encouragingly and points to a large machine inside. After a few seconds of you both staring at each other, the ragdoll skips back to you and pushes against your legs, trying to move you towards the machine. 
It's weirdly strong for an inanimate toy. Do you want to do what the ragdoll wants you to do, or would you rather talk to the man? Children's dolls are quite sinister at the best of times, and animated children's dolls are even more sinister. I would be amazed if this living ragdoll wants to uh, do anything nice for me. So I will uh, ignore the ragdoll and I will go and try and talk to the thin man. The man meets you halfway and shakes your hand firmly, introducing himself as Cornelius. Hey, we've met someone nice. He seems trustworthy, so you let him lead you back towards the woman. See, there's a picture of him, and he does look quite a lot like uh, Freud, um, who is not a man I would trust an inch, but yeah, maybe maybe he's got trustworthy eyes. Uh, it's a nice picture. It's another really strong bit of work. He seems trustworthy, so you let him lead you towards the woman, but she screeches and shuffles backwards. With some gentle words, Cornelius soothes her, and she quietens, sitting with her arms clutched around her legs. Her forehead is resting on her knees, and you can clearly now see that she has had the top of her skull removed. You point with a shaking finger at the wrinkled, exposed brain. Yes, and she's also in the picture, um, and indeed her brain is exposed, and you can see rather gruesomely where the skin has been sort of peeled down to uh, yeah, reveal her squiggly bits, which I believe is the technical name for uh, the brain. What happened to her? you ask. He calls her number two, but uh, she is Joanna. A powerful witch with a temper, but only those who were cruel to others and did not heed her warning. She had a fierce ability to create madness, and then he took it. I don't know how, but it was concentrated in the pineal gland deep in her brain, and as you can see, he managed to gouge the gland out. Now all she can do is produce random chaos whenever she's frightened, so I stay with her, and I protect her. He smiles fondly at the witch and absent-mindedly strokes his wiry white beard. I'm always a little bit more relaxed once I've met an old man, uh, particularly when I've been able to uh, bring out my old man voice, which I do very much enjoy doing. Before you can ask anything else, Joanna starts to rock back and forth and hit her fist against the jagged ridge of her skull. Abruptly, the shadows creep back and the room shifts with a kaleidoscope of colours. Cornelius pushes you to the door with a sharp, Go! And as you leave, you can hear him murmuring words of comfort to the ruined witch. Back in the corridor, you can enter the prayer room if you've not already been there, or you can carry along down the passageway, or uh, to the left or to the right, um, which goes back to the operating theatre department. You should probably note down that number two is Joanna. Um, and then I think we will head to the prayer room. You step in, let the door close gently behind you and stand there agog. It's a small room with no windows and it's brown. The carpet, the walls, the ceiling are all a deep rich brown. It's like standing in a vat of warm chocolate. Or a grave, your inner voice unhelpfully chips in with. There are a few cheap wooden chairs and a brown velvet upholstery that have seen better days, and, at the far end, 
a full-length stained-glass mural. It depicts a forest with lush green leaves on the trees and a deer, a badger and a crow lurking in the undergrowth. Whilst it makes sense to have a nature scene as the focal point instead of religious images, this seems gloomy, disturbing even. You're not sure what it is, but there's something distinctly creepy about it. Do you feel a sudden urge to destroy it? Although breaking glass when there's a killer stalking the hospital isn't the most sensible thing to do. If you want to follow your instincts and smash the mural, you can do so. If you'd prefer to stay quiet and leave the prayer room, you could head across the corridor to the neurosurgical ward if you haven't done so already, or just continue along the passageway, uh, either left or right. Well, I'm going to give in to the temptation to smash the mural. Um, I mean, not something I would do in real life. I'm a religious person who loves uh, stained glass as an art form. But again, that curiosity to find out exactly what happens is overwhelming. The chair lurches through the air towards the sturdy mural glass. You envisage the chair either bouncing straight off or breaking into wooden pieces, but there is a deafening sound of shattered glass as the entire floor-to-ceiling pane collapses into thousands of shards. After a stunned pause, when the glass remnants have all fallen, you face the door, fully expecting the man to come bursting in. But nothing happens. Now that the gloomy forest scene is no more, you feel lighter somehow. Make a note of the code word shards and leave the prayer room. I'll make a note of the code word shards. And looking at the time I've been recording, I think that is going to be a decent place to stop. I don't want to reveal too much of this one because I'm really, really enjoying it. And uh, as with a lot of horror media, I think uh, discovering it for yourself for the first time is a lot of the uh, impact value of horror. And uh, I don't want to spoil too many of the story's surprises. Uh, I think you've got enough there to get a really strong flavour of what the game book is like and what it's about. Yeah, I'm having a lovely time with this one. I'm going to go away and play through it on my own time, and then I'll be back for you in just a few seconds with some closing remarks. Tatty bye! So my first attempt to beat the book ended when I made the mistake of running upstairs before I had really worked out what I was supposed to be doing. I saw many horrors and learned several terrible things, but finally I blundered into the very murderer I was trying to avoid. The nice thing is that the text made it clear that he knew I was fumbling around in the dark, and that's a really nice touch. It made an arbitrary death feel somehow a little less arbitrary, if that makes any sense. In general, finishing Night Shift actually took longer than I expected. It's a tricky book, but not an especially unfair one. It manages to pack a great deal of content into 401 paragraphs and delivers something that feels like it draws on recognisable sources while retaining its own identity along the way. I really enjoyed it, and that's with only a couple of minor reservations, because, of course, there are minor reservations. Structurally, I'm a big fan of how this book is laid out. Firstly, there's a simple premise which remains absolutely the focus throughout the story. 
you are trapped in a strange netherworld which resembles a hospital with a maniac who resembles Jack the Ripper and the echoes of his previous victims. You have to defeat not only him but also the mysterious force which is behind him. I'm a big believer in keeping things simple unless there's a good reason not to and Night Shift does a sterling job of retaining focus throughout its different acts. I think this is something that's especially important with horror stories as opposed to road stories where part of the appeal is the fact that you're going to be coming across new things every time you move location. Anything that doesn't directly serve the mood can wind up feeling like a romantic subplot in a slasher movie. And unless that romantic subplot somehow turns out to be relevant to the maniac on the loose, people will often correctly assume that you're just filling in time in the absence of any better ideas. Night Shift has a lean quality to it. Almost everything that's in the game book contributes either directly or indirectly to the main thrust of the narrative. You're exploring a surreal and distorted nightmare in a search for people and items that can help you escape. I think it helps that hospitals are naturally scary places. They're a kind of combination of liminal spaces through which hordes of people pass through and almost hidden shrines to human suffering with the omnipresent reality of death sort of lurking in the walls. Related to this is the geographical tightness of the book. This is another thing that's often a good plan in horror stories. A lot of the best horror films take place in a very constrained setting, and indeed a lot of the best horror books as well. The Exorcist is focused on a single house. Saw's key action takes place in a single room. It's something I also drew on for my first game book, The House of the Unquiet Dead, where I tried to create a narrative contained in a single Victorian house. The greatest example of this in game books is probably House of Hell by Steve Jackson, and the fact that I found echoes of that in Night Shift is a testament to the high quality to be found in this game book. What the author has done is create a fascinating space which has elements of a familiar space, in this case a hospital, and then iterates on that to create something much weirder. You've actually got a more constrained space than most actual hospitals, which tend towards the large and rambling. This is a tight claustrophobic vision of a hospital, and it works really well. There's no wasted real estate, everything has a purpose, and the structure of different floors makes exploring feel much more manageable. You also get a nice change from a space riffing on a modern hospital to a space riffing on a Victorian hospital, and that provides a subtle sense of escalation as you work your way through the book, and it keeps the environments from becoming too stale. There's also a Lewis Carroll dream-like vibe to some of the encounters, which provides another point of continuity throughout the book. Um, it's a mixture of gore and whimsy that I personally found very engaging. I'm a big fan of regular places that have become twisted and strange, and I'm also a big fan of spaces that have an internal logic that help assist navigation. And I think Night Shift does a really good job on both fronts. 
the combination of being able to make your way through a familiar hospital in the early stages combines nicely with the latter portions being much less visually familiar. It provides scaffolding for the new player, which is then gradually removed as you delve deeper into the nightmare. And that's a very nice thing indeed. One thing I will say about the structure is that you should definitely be using the maps at the back of the book. And you should probably be making your own map as well. It's a very dense book and you'll want to explore absolutely everywhere. And the only way to make that possible is tracking where everything is and what you've found along the way. I have a well-known antipathy to making maps, but I only felt like I really started to make progress with this one once I started tracking where I'd been and marking where all the various objects were for subsequent playthroughs. In order to beat this book, you do have to jump through a lot of different hoops, and sometimes you'll need to jump through them in a specific order. And this all makes it a fairly tricky book, and that's not a bad thing. You'll want to explore everywhere, which means that you'll almost certainly get to experience everything the game book has to offer, and that's always a nice feeling. I really like feeling as though I've read the majority of entries in a game book by the time I've finished. Alongside the map, you'll also want to track all of the various clues. There's a lot of items and keywords, as normal for a game book, but there's also lots of snippets of information and clues that I found it very useful to jot down as well. Considering there's no combat system or stats to keep track of, I found I'd written a lot of things down, and I wonder if the lack of those systems was partly a response to recognising that there's already quite a bit of bookkeeping baked into the content. The encounters are tremendously varied, especially when you consider that a lot of them consist of finding various victims of the villain's penchant for collecting body parts. There's a lot of gruesome imagery that comes along with the theme of harvesting organs from witches, and in the background a typically syncretic neo-pagan cosmology which is explored throughout the story. And that adds another bit of consistency to the narrative, as well as providing um, a flavour of exoticism. If you're not a neo-pagan yourself, it really adds to the story. There are some absolutely cracking bits of grotesque medical imagery sprinkled through the book, and it adds to that very pervasive and consistent atmosphere. Some of the author's medical knowledge comes through in nice little moments as well. It's not in your face, but it adds the feeling that your character has a medical background when small, grisly details, like the possibility of a replacement hip surviving a body being burned to ash, are included. The encounter design is very clean for the most part. There's a lot of either or decisions, which is good in a book with a fairly high number of death sections. It's fairly easy to remember where you went wrong last time. The whole book is characterised by a very clean design. You've got puzzles which range from fairly simple to quite tricky, along with plenty of items and a handful of keywords doing the rest of the mechanical heavy lifting. There are a few hidden sections which are also nicely implemented. I'm not the biggest fan of hidden sections, but if you're going to do them, 
it helps if they cover things that you wouldn't want to ask in the text. That means either limiting them to something really important but obtuse, or things that you don't want to break the flow of the narrative. There's an NPC you can pick up, for example, who provides some clues in certain marked sections by subtracting a number from the current paragraph. This feels particularly good since if you don't have the NPC with you, you won't actually notice the absence in the text. It feels like a little secret bonus and that's nice. On the other hand, there is at least one key that has been marked with a three-digit number that's needed to progress and that sort of thing does just annoy me. Quite often I found that items were used relatively close to where they were found and that's something I think that it's worth thinking about more generally in design. I think it helps make a surreal space feel easier to decode when you can form causal links between nearby locations that are more than simple location information. What I mean by that is that things have associations attached to them. Uh, it's why finding a book in a library is easier to remember than finding a book in an armory. The first reinforces an existing mental association and the second subverts it. It's suggested that when you activate a memory for a specific object in the brain, that also raises the activation level for all the related objects which are stored in your memory, and that brings all of those objects closer to conscious awareness. So if you think of a book, that will also trigger the concept of library, making it more likely that you'll remember where the book is if it's in a library. A book won't generally trigger the concept of armory, which makes remembering a book in an armory significantly harder. Similarly, there's a recency effect as well, where if there's a short gap between getting an item and needing an item, it's easier to form mental links between the two because the item hasn't sort of dissolved back into the mysterious soup of memory to quite the same extent. This is an especially useful thing to take advantage of if your gamebook is quite surreal, which this one is. Surreal images are easy to remember if there's only one or two because they stand out against the relatively staid bedrock that forms the rest of the narrative. But if there's a lot of surreal and bizarre images, they can be quite hard to remember. And I think that's partly because you don't get the memory benefit from attaching images to already existing associations. In something like Night Shift, where you've got a floor-based structure, it's good to have the majority of items and clues being used on the same floor or the floor immediately following it. There's a lot to juggle here, and reducing the cognitive load is extremely helpful. It's not always the case by any means, but when I found myself searching for things I needed, they were often quite close to hand, and I think that's a good thing. And in the same way, when I discovered an item that would help me with a puzzle that was set to me by some children on a previous playthrough, it was enormously helpful to go, ah yes, I remember where they are, they're in the paediatric ward because that's where you would find children most often in a hospital. Now, formal puzzles are a hard thing to integrate into a narrative. There's a reason that The Hobbit has one real section and one bit where Bilbo has to spot a bird behaving weirdly. 
they have a tendency to break immersion. Puzzles are by their very nature artificial. There's nothing like being at the controls of a spaceship and then being told that the docking computer will only respond to crossword clues. Creating artificial locations for adventure helps deal with that immersion issue. When you're caught in the web of a demented pan-dimensional serial killer and talking to animals, the puzzles slot into the madness a lot more cleanly than if this was an adventure taking place entirely in a modern setting. I'd say the puzzles are pretty good for the most part. I did need to look up one, but that was as much due to being pressed for time as anything else. I think I would have got there in the end, but uh, I really needed to uh, finish the book and start writing my notes for these closing remarks. So I was very grateful to have the opportunity to cheat a little bit. There's enough puzzles to make them feel like a core feature, but not so many that it felt like it was breaking the flow of the narrative. Another issue with puzzles is that you are removing yourself from the narrative while you solve it, and if you're applying all of your intellectual capacities to solving the puzzle, it can then be difficult to jump back into the narrative and remember exactly what it was you were doing before the talking raven started to ask you riddles about numbers of nursemaids or whatever. There's a decent variety in the puzzles as well, and only one anagram for which I was enormously grateful, because like most dyslexics, I have a particular loathing for anagram puzzles. Letters come pre-jumbled for me. I don't need anyone else to help me with it. Still, I did get that one in the end, which felt like a proper victory. So I thought the puzzles were pretty good. I don't think they're ever going to be my favourite part of a game book, but if you're going to have them, I think this is a textbook example of how to do them well and to do them fairly. I will say that this was a particularly fun book to read out loud. There's a clear register and the sense of constant dread was very enjoyable to try and convey. Now, I'm obviously not a trained actor in any sense, but I do notice when the text gives me material that I can work with, with my incredibly limited repertoire of voice tricks. It's not something I've really talked about before, but it can really affect how I feel about a book. Um, it's also something that can change when I come to play off mic. Some stuff works better on the page and some works better when it's read out loud. This one worked well in both, to be honest, and that's very pleasing. The artwork is also very strong and contributes to the atmosphere um, very nicely. There's a genuinely harrowing depiction of a burned body that leaps off the page and feels quite stomach-churning. Um, that was my highlight and... The rest of the artwork is generally very good as well. I think the images that have been selected from the text are good as well. There are no pictures of doors or chests in empty rooms um, from an illustrator keen to get through the assignments as quickly as possible here. I will say that the picture of the demon is a bit underwhelming, but that's my only complaint on what is otherwise some very strong art that does exactly what gamebook art should do which is elevate the prose without trying to replace it. If I have a complaint about Night Shift, it's that I did find myself missing some kind of resource like health that could be depleted. I think the decision not to use dice is a perfectly fair one, but 
but that does mean that the only in-game consequence for making mistakes is failing the gamebook. In this context, that means death, either immediately or deferred to when you realise that you don't have the correct item or keyword to progress. I don't have a problem with a lot of death sections in gamebooks. I like a good death. But in a game this intricate, being sent back to the start feels like quite a big punishment because you know that you've got to do everything exactly right to get further. There's not really much scope for deviating from the path. In a choose-your-own-adventure story, the goal is usually to find lots of different endings. We saw that nicely deployed in the Castle Ravenloft Endless Quest book. But if you've got puzzles and items to wrangle, there's more of a focus on beating the book, so deaths feel a bit more punishing. I think having a resource like health or sanity that could be depleted as an alternative to sending you right back to the beginning could have made things a little bit more interesting. If you don't want to do a number that ticks up or down, you could do something with keywords or items that influence how the final stages of the book play out. Say, if you've got three or more black gems, you get the bad ending or something like that. It would make getting black gems feel bad, but not so bad that it ended the playthrough. There's little hints of this with some of the encounters which can come back to bite you later, in one case literally, but I think there is something to be said for having an explicit resource that's baked in from the start and which provides an intermediate punishment between life and death. That's my biggest substantive criticism, and even then, it's nitpicking on this occasion. I really enjoyed Night Shift if you've got any interest in horror game books. I would recommend checking it out. Um, I'm going to be playing through some more of Victoria Hancock's other game books as well. This is the first book in a series and there's some really tantalising hints in the closing paragraph which makes me very keen to find out where it goes in subsequent volumes. I will be back in a couple of weeks with another regular instalment of Fantastic Fights in which I'll be playing book 42 in the fighting fantasy series Black Vein Prophecy. You can get in touch with me, as I said at the start, by following me on Blue Sky at HJ Doom, where I mostly rant about the state of the world and make weak jokes at the expense of Conservative MPs. Or you can get in touch by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, I'd be enormously grateful if you could leave a review on your podcasting app of choice. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.